health information and, and healthcare is so broad and so complex and we need every type of doctor. We need people that are highly sub-sub-sub-specialized because God forbid if I had a rare disease, I would want to go to that highly sub-sub-sub-specialized physician. But just because a person's a physician doesn't automatically mean that they are an expert on every type of you know, medicine. I'm very passionate about the types of programs that uh, kind of look at health and well-being from a more holistic standpoint that bring together all these different entities. Um, because I think that those are the types of programs that can make the biggest impact and can kind of help a person really in small um, bite-sized steps work towards um, what I think of as hope health. Dr. Sharon Berquist, and this is Christina or Tina, your host. Okay, today's intro is going to be just a little bit longer because I have to explain this to you so you can understand the gravity of situation. <laughs> so I know I'm always, uh, I always say that I'm excited about my guests, but today I am extremely excited about my guest. So Dr. Dr. Sharon Berquist is a rock star. Um, let me let me give you an official scoop first, and then I'll 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 help you understand why I'm so excited about it. So, the official version is Dr. Sharon Berquist uh, is a Rollins Senior Distinguished Clinician, which is very important, Master Clinician and Assistant Professor of Medicine uh, in the Division of General Medicine and Geriatrics at Emory University School of Medicine. <laughs> so she earned her Bachelor's of Science from Yale University and her medical degree from Harvard Medical School. She completed her internship and residency at Harvard Brigham's, uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and she's a fellow of the American College of Physicians and a member of American College of Lifestyle Medicine. She strongly believes in personalized and comprehensive health management, incorporates prevention and wellness strategies into her practice, um, her experience is just extremely versatile. She is involved in so many different research projects, and uh, it includes diabetes and heart disease prevention and management, nutrition and obesity counseling, women's health, management of mood disorders such as anxiety and depression. She's extremely passionate about um, aging or anti-aging research and brain health. Um, she's truly remarkable. Um, so right now, Dr. Burke was in addition to having a faculty assignment at the Emory University School of uh, Medicine, she's also medical director of Emory Executive Health Program, and um, she leads research at Paul Seavey's Comprehensive Internal Medicine Clinic, and most importantly, she is the founder and medical director of Emory Lifestyle Medicine and Wellness Center. Yes. Um, so now let me explain you why I'm so excited about it. Um, if you know me at all, if we've met, you've probably heard me talk about the things that I get to do um, at, with my work at Emory Healthcare, specifically as it relates to lifestyle medicine. Um, 
I, I'm, I'm getting my MPH, the master's in public health right now, graduating in August. And this is like, this is it. This is, this is why I'm here. I've found my path and I'm just extremely excited about the work that I get to do and the many new doors that will continue to open to me after I get the, the degree um, and further my, my knowledge and skill set. But um, Dr. Berkvist is just a, a big, a big, a humongous part of why I get so excited about my work and also why the work that, that, that I get to be a part of is happening big time. So some of you may know uh, when I, I moved to Atlanta about three and a half years ago and I stumbled into healthcare uh, and uh, I, my, my job was in surgery, I was a, pub, a project manager in surgery. So it had nothing to do with prevention, and I don't even know how I started working in healthcare. But interestingly enough, in my personal life at that time, I was um, in exploring and putting some time and effort into learning more about the evidence behind the research uh, for plant-based nutrition. I was uh, a vegetarian for many years and, and uh, turning becoming vegan. And I was really interested, and, and I've, I started getting questions from my friends, especially those who had kids, uh, about, well, okay, I know you're doing it, but can I do it and what's the best way to do it? And I felt I felt safe enough and I had an argument for me was strong enough in order to transition to vegan diet myself. But then if I was asked for advice and if I wanted to provide qualified and evidence-based um, response to the questions, I felt like I needed to get more education. So I started to go into these conferences and, and literary literature from medical doctors and reading research. And I quickly came to realize that there was an amazing body of research all showing and proving the tremendous power that nutrition can have in our life. And not just prevent disease, but also arrest and reverse chronic disease. I've met people who cured or healed their bodies uh, from, from cancer, from um, heart disease, from from just things that and, and lost amazing amounts of weight that just things that we we don't see that often and making that through not a pill not a surgery but simply changing what they ate and what what they chose to put in their plate and that just blew my mind so I remember going to this conference in Albuquerque New Mexico it was the uh, peapod the plant-based prevention of disease conference and I was in the mission uh, because I was I, I was beginning to realize the power of this and I was like okay well I'm already in healthcare now it all makes sense now I just uh, uh, I, I just go back to healthcare and I figure out how to make it a part of healthcare so I started on this mission to find every single person that had to do anything with plant-based nutrition at Emory Healthcare where I work and here I am on the other side of the of the United States of America in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I start asking questions from these people who are there. And um, I've met um, Dr. Jennifer Rook, who is local here to Atlanta, Georgia, and she referred me to somebody who is actually Brittany Summerlin, who also is a dear friend of mine now. She she's a registered dietitian, another partner of crime of mine. Anyways, long story short, I had to go on the other side of, uh, of uh, the United States in order to find eventually the name of Dr. Sharon Berkwist. So uh, Dr. Sharon Berkwist was known already in, in the community as a kind of thought leader and a leader in prevention uh, and, and plant-based nutrition specifically. And at that point, she was the only uh, physician or the only doctor that I found within Emory Healthcare who had anything to do with plant-based nutrition. So I started just knocking on Dr. Berkwist's door and she was very kind to have conversations with me. And months and months afterwards, uh, in just amazing turns of 
universe, the, the way that it usually works, I uh, landed myself a job working alongside Dr. Sharon Berquist. And now, um, I think it's been two years now. I don't even remember anymore. But I guess it's been two years. And now, two years later, I find myself working on the things that I could only dream of uh, two years ago. And it's, it's just the beginning. Again, if you have met me before, you probably heard me talk about Dr. Berquist. Um, I think she, beyond just making incredible change and impact in the life of her patients and in the life in in the life of all of us, truly, as she uh, further um, clarifies and uh, brings the vision of what's possible within healthcare to life. Um, she is just also an incredible human being. She's extremely kind. She's an amazing leader. She is very, uh, very smart and intelligent. And she, I still don't know. I always laugh about it. I don't know how she gets the work that she gets accomplished, accomplished in the amount of time that she does with a smile on her face. So it's funny. It's actually one of the questions I ask her because, I mean, the healthcare is a pretty stressful environment. And you, could, if you were just like observing her, you would never tell. So this is a conversation um, about a little bit about everything, really. I, I mean, I, I, I will definitely have to get her back to go more in depth on a few other topics and even the topics we have already discussed. But basically, this is just a, a, an overall uh, overview of lifestyle medicine tools available to us. So I asked Dr. Berkowitz about a little bit about her background. We talk about stress management, and I ask her to share some of her tips of how she manages stress and, and workload and simple things that she gets to do um, to, to help her deal with that and appear and, and also come across as a kind human being. And then we also talk about plant-based nutrition and, and the research and um, why, how, why does not all doctors see the value of plant-based nutrition today? And then we also talk a little bit about the work um, that we do at Emory and the, the, what her vision is. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, I'm sorry for this long intro. I just can't. I'm way too excited not, not to do it. And I really have to uh, give you this background and context because I think you'll just appreciate this interview so much more. And again, Dr. Berkowitz, she like nobody has time for this okay and just the fact that she allowed me to interrogate her for an hour I'm just so incredibly grateful um, I really hope you enjoy this interview uh, if you want to know more about specific areas like if you have ideas for the questions that I should ask her for next time please send them to me uh, you can follow me on insta facebook um, I'll, I'll include all the links um, let's see. Oh, and Dr. Berkowitz is also a host for the other podcast that I produce, uh, and it's called The Whole Health Cure. So that's 30 minutes conversations every week with subject matter experts in all different kinds of uh, lifestyle medicine. It's a little bit more scientific approach, evidence-based, but definitely some really, really cool tips and really cool conversations from the experts um, locally and internationally. So I highly suggest you tune in into that as well. I'll include all the links in the show notes. Um, and uh, yeah, I really hope you're staying well through this wild pandemic. I really hope you're able to see the silver lining along all of this. I think, I, I really hope that you're taking care of yourself and I hope that you enjoy this conversation. Thank you guys, bye. everyone welcome to another episode of follow your kind podcast i usually say i'm very excited about my guests 
but today is a very, very special day as we have Dr. Sharon Berkowitz, my amazing partner in crime and the person I truly admire, uh, who most of you probably know at this point from my stories, but today we actually get to hear from her. So hi, Dr. Sharon Berkowitz. Hi, Tina. Thank you so much for all the kind words that you've said. I appreciate being on your podcast. Thank you so much. I, we, I really, really appreciate your time. As we all know, during this crazy times of pandemics and so much unpredictability and so much on, on the plate of all of us, um, it's, I, I just always admire you for making the time for the things that you care about and for the people that you care about. So thank you so much. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Okay, so I'm very excited to take this opportunity uh, to learn a little bit more about your story first, because we get to spend a lot of time uh, together as we work on all of the exciting projects. Um, and I don't always uh, know how far uh, it started for you. So the question that I wanna start with today um, is uh, where did your story begin? When did you get inspired by um, plant-based nutrition or the power of lifestyle medicine overall as a tool in healthcare? Where did that journey begin for you? You know, Tina, that, that's such a great question because a lot of times, you know, you have to think back because what at the time may not have seen as a starting point in retrospect um, is what defined a certain path. So I would say what inspired me is really um, something more indirect than the direct start on this path. And it goes back to when I was little, when I was in junior high, um, and my father had had a heart attack. And I distinctly remember we were at home and paramedics came and put him on the stretcher. Um, and around that time, you know, obviously we were very worried as a family. Unfortunately, he survived. But following that event, we started to make a lot of changes in our home. Um, my mother, who's used to cooking um, ethnic dishes that usually have a lot of oil and wouldn't be you know, considered necessarily um, healthy by the American Heart Association standards, started to change the way she prepared meals and she joined Weight Watchers and became very you know, conscious about the foods that she would make at home. Um, my father, who follows physician's orders to a T, um, began walking an hour every day, coming home a little bit earlier. And as a family, we would join him. We would go um, to, um, anyone who lives in the Atlanta area that'd be familiar with this, but to the Chattahoochee River along the trails. And as a family, we would all exercise together. And even though we didn't use the term wellness and, uh, or well-being, the journey really began then, and it became such an integral part of our life. And, you know, I'm fortunate and blessed enough to be able to say that when I look back now, decades later, I think those habits and the changes we made um, have helped my family become so much healthier. You know, my father, knock on wood, um, you know, he's still walking daily. Um, and this is now four decades later. Um, and, and I think it's really helped them age very gracefully. And so I think it has its roots way back um, to childhood. 
I think the more you know official inspiration, if you will, um, came when I had a greater understanding of why these habits make a difference, and that ties into when I started practicing medicine and, and internal medicine, primary care. Most of what we see is chronic disease, um, and as you know, most chronic diseases like heart disease, diabetes, these are about eighty percent preventable. So, seeing how these diseases play out in my patients, ones that are more proactive about their care versus ones that uh, don't do their part um, and rely on medications rather than lifestyle changes, has really, over the years, helped me see how powerful lifestyle is um, and how the body can heal itself if you just nurture your own body. That is such an amazing story. Um, I wonder how the, your personal experience from when you were young, how and if it directed in any way the fact that you did go into medicine and then the kind of medicine or the, the, the specific uh, area of medicine that you chose for yourself as the area to practice. You know, I think I've, always been very interested in math and science and have had just such an appreciation for the human body. Um, I think it was somewhere in college that I made the decision to go into medicine. Um, and I think that just came from the general interest in biology and physiology. Um, and it took me this path, you know, to medicine. Um, so I, I think it's a lot of things that have taken me down this path. Um, I think the area of medicine and specifically um, being interested in the preventive part of care rather than the more um, subspecialty oriented care um, is something that uh, probably my uh, mindset, the framework with which I come into it has, you know, my childhood in specific has influenced. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, did you Feel, I know it's a, it's a part of the conversation nowadays about, well, how much of education in the areas of the power of the plant-based nutrition, be it the exercise or stress and mindfulness, how, uh, how robust those components are in medical school. Uh, from Based on your experience of getting your education, did you think there was enough emphasis, too much emphasis, not enough emphasis on, on some of the tools that are available to, to us uh, and to our patients beyond medication? You know, Tim, I think that medical education is evolving as it should. Um, so I'm going to date myself and, and say that when I went to medical school, um, which is now over 25 years ago, um, <laughs> prevention and the emphasis on prevention wasn't as robust as it is today. And I went um, to, uh, you know, academic medical center for training that was highly sub, sub, sub specialized. Um, and so the emphasis was definitely more um, towards treatment oriented care. Um, and, and I think I got a very solid education, but I would say there was little in that education um, centered around nutrition. Um, in fact, I, I don't really have any recollection of um, time dedicated to understanding nutrition. Um, 
I think that's changing, and I think that medical schools are increasingly aware that wellness and prevention is the key to helping, you know, kind of bend the cost curve, the, the epidemics that we're seeing in chronic disease. Um, and as such, it needs to be a bigger part of healthcare delivery. Um, so we're helping people at an earlier stage rather than waiting until they're sick and need to reach out. Um, so to answer your question, back in my day, you know, when we walked barefoot in the snow and, you know, had to walk three miles to you know, back and forth, um, you know, so it was a different time, um, but it was not um, a time that put a lot of, uh, or really any effort into training for wellness. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. So then the next uh, kind of stage that I'm hearing is you have this inspiration um, or this framework that kind of lives with you rather early on from the changes that are possible uh, when somebody is uh, determined to, to make lifestyle changes uh, and therefore have impact on their health from the example of your family. And then it sounds like after going through school and then starting practice, starting your practice and um, caring for patients, you're learning and, and seeing the, the examples of how truly powerful these lifestyle tools are in your patients. Is there uh, a specific patient or a story stands out or like a light bulb moment that stands out to you where you really realize that the power of the, the tools that we're talking about? Yeah, Tina, I think the, the part that kind of sticks out the most with some of my patients are centered around the less tangible and the less quantitative um, parts of well-being and how it's kind of snuck up on people. And what I mean by that is, you know, we, you know, see a spectrum of patients from very diverse socioeconomic backgrounds, but even um, amongst my patients who um, have, you know, fairly high, um, you know, knowledge and skills, making the connection between our lifestyle and specifically around stress management um, and how it influences their physical manifestations. You know, I've had people who, you know, can run large organizations yet still not make that connection as it applies to them. I think sometimes it's really hard to see um, a symptom or a problem in ourselves. We're a lot quicker to pick up on problems in other people or coach other people. Um, it's just so much harder to turn the mirror um, introspectively and make those connections. So I've had, you know, people come in with um, very strong physical symptoms. I can remember one patient in particular who came in with severe abdominal cramps that actually took him to the emergency room because the severity was such that we were convinced that this was an urgent um, issue that may even be a surgical issue. Um, short story, he gets all the imaging tests, the CAT scans, everything comes back normal. And as we um, kind of in hindsight went through the events that were preceding the abdominal pain, he had been under inordinate amount of stress and, and is one that always handles stress well. 
um, and you know leads a large team, I don't think he'd ever made the connection um, that the physical manifestations that were so real and so strong could have been um, based on his you know, mental state. Um, so I think it is really powerful because it's not necessarily obvious. You know, we think of the physical dimension that if you exercise X amount this many days a week, that this will lead to a better health outcome. And these are tangible and people can, you know, pinpoint when they do it and when they don't do it. It's so concrete, it's so measurable. The parts of well-being that I think are more subtle, um, but, you know, I think may influence our health in a more profound way are around our emotional well-being, our social well-being, our spiritual well-being. And, and that's, I think, where I've had patients have the aha moments and where I think of um, the clearest stories of how it's made a difference. Mm. This is such a powerful message. And for the, for, the, for the listeners also to put in the perspective, because I know we talk about lifestyle medicine all day, every day, but the tools that we're talking about and the, the, the pillars of, uh, of health that we're talking about in terms of lifestyle medicine specifically, we talk about exercise, we talk about nutrition, be plant-based nutrition. Uh, we talk about ability to manage stress uh, through mindfulness or some other techniques. There are some other areas such as relationships and connections. Um, perhaps uh, the uh, addictive substances. So uh, right now we're talking about the stress management component and, and the effects of stress overall. And I know you, Dr. Berkowitz, uh, are certainly an expert uh, on many different topics, but stress especially. Uh, and I see it from, from different angles. I see it from you being able to talk about stress of course the the youtube video that's available i'll include in show notes the tedx video about stress that you made that just puts that just does a really good job describing the effects that the stress has in our body but another example that i see um why i i think of you as an expert on stress is just from from your personal example and from your incredible unhuman ability to be able to not only manage stress and uh, function just beautifully under stressful conditions, but also be able to be extremely productive, put out a, an amazing amount of quality work into the universe and do it with a smile while also being kind to people. And I always joke around that you are either an alien or you have a time machine that I'm yet to find. Um, but this is probably one of the areas uh, or one of the many strengths that you have that I really, really, truly admire and, and respect and appreciate about you. Can you tell us uh, maybe some of the secrets or some of the strategies that you use in order to be able to handle all of that so gracefully? Well, Tina, first of all, thank you very much. I, I'm not sure I deserve that, that much credit, um, but I, I am glad that that's the perception at least. Um, you know, there's a lot about stress that is really a science. You know, I think we use the term so much. Most people, you know, on a given day will you know, invariably use the term, I'm stressed or, oh, I'm under so much stress. There's so much going on that's stressful. You know, we throw around this term so much, but um, there's a scientific approach. And I think a lot of times when you try and, you know, tell other people 
how to manage their stress. You have to kind of practice those principles yourself. It's hard you know, in doing the kind of work I do um, to tell others and then not use those principles into your own life. You know, I, I would say I would be very hypocritical if I did that. Um, so I think testing these principles um, is helpful because it also helps you understand the parts that are hard to do, you know, for example, one common approach to reducing stress or coping with stress is meditation. Um, and I think practicing that is so much harder than telling someone else to do it. Um, and, you know, I remember when I started trying to meditate, I, I think I lasted three seconds. Um, and I, you know, kept on thinking something should be happening. I don't feel anything. Something should be happening. And I kept on doing it day after day and thinking, okay, maybe if I did it five seconds or 10 seconds, um, some, you know, great transformation was going to happen. Um, and, you know, it, it took months until I think I uh, finally could feel um, the calm and the unbelievable control that a person can have. Um, in their mindset um, that can only come from really doing the meditation as it was intended to be. Um, so I think that's one of the tools. I think that's one of the most common ones. And I think there's a lot of literature around resilience. Um, and so with the stress response, if uh, you know we go back to biology, um, it's really a two-phase response. There's activation, that's the part of our sympathetic nervous system that ramps up as the fight or flight response. And then the second part of the stress response that people often overlook is that there's this down-regulation of the stress response triggered by the parasympathetic nervous system, um, which some term is the tend and befriend part of our nervous system. Um, and the goal of stress, to use it to your advantage, um, is to after every activation, every time that you're responding to a challenge, um, is to allow the stress hormones and chemicals to dial down to the baseline state. And if we let the stress hormones downregulate, um, so we give ourselves moments of recovery where we can um, relax and uh, kind of disengage from that stress, it helps us, you know, first of all, perform our best. That's why we have the stress response in the first place. It's a protective mechanism. It helps us survive. Um, and if we can use that time to recover from stress, we actually grow from stress because some of the stress chemicals um, are growth factors like nerve growth factor, DHEA. And after the episode, you fight a bear, you know, whatever stress is in modern day, the episode doesn't end when your heart stops pounding. For hours afterwards, these growth hormones are helping you develop pathways in your brain, which we call neuroplasticity, that help you remember how you handle stress. So we're kind of wiring our response so the next time we encounter the same stress, we're better at it. And this can only happen if you give yourself time to recover from the stress. So if you have a deadline, you um, schedule time um, to unwind, if you will, that you don't just overcommit yourself and go to the next and go to the next and go to the next. 
And if we do that, it's such a powerful thing because these tiny doses of stress that we all encounter day to day um, can actually work like a vaccine. And researchers refer to it as stress inoculation, where you develop a sense of immunity to stress because you get better and better and better at it. Um, so, you know, I know in my day and in, in the course of my week, um, certainly there are time crunches and uh, deadlines, things that, you know, require us to be on. Um, and what I try and do is after, you know, those, you know, succession of events, try and give myself a little bit of time to recover, you know, whether it's going for a long walk or a good workout, something that just helps my body um, just unwind where I feel that relaxed state again, um, because I know that recovery prevents um, the you know, long-term damages that come from excess cortisol. And it um, helps me continue to function well, and it helps a person, um, you know, go through stressful periods, you know, embrace challenges, um, but feel that they can do so in a way where they can be their best and not experience all the negative ramifications that can come from a lot of stress in our lives. Wow, what a what an amazing explanation. Uh, you're, you're such a wonderful educator. And again, you have such a talent of being able to put complex um, notions and complex uh, terms uh, into such understandable examples that are so much easier to grasp and apply. And what a powerful way to reframe something that uh, some of us tend to run away from or want to run away from today, like stress into something that you could, that it can actually empower you and that you can grow from. I really love the analogy of uh, reframing and looking at stress uh, from a broader perspective and kind of have that complete cycle of also building in the recovery time after the stressful event that actually helps you grow and learn from that event that just uh, came. Are there any other um, ways that you hear from your patients or maybe you suggest your patients uh, that they uh, use the time to recover, maybe other tools that they use to recover from the stressful events? Yeah, so, you know, Tina, a lot of um, the recovery comes from being able to redirect your mind and your thoughts. And so um, the thing that doesn't work, I'll start with that, is to tell yourself to not be stressed. And so our brains are not designed to not do something we tell it to, but our brains also can't hold two thoughts at the same time. So if you, know, you want to stop um, becoming stressed over some, let's say, um, event at work. Instead of saying, I'm going to put that out of mind, I'm going to put that out of mind, you can substitute that thought and instead focus on something that gives you joy and pleasure. You know, people call it going to your happy place, but you can use imagery, you can use music, you can use anything that um, gives you pleasure. You can read a book, but by shifting your attention to something else, it helps you put aside the thing that you're really stressed about. So there are many ways you can, you know, I call it just distract your mind. Um, so it, again, it could be music, it could be um, 
a good book. It could be, you know, reading, um, you know, some enjoyable magazine, anything that you want to do. Um, but the main theme is that it's distraction. Um, you know, that's how laughter works. If a person's under extreme stress in that moment, if you use humor, the humor distracts that train of thought. You, know, you can even break a panic attack um, by, you know, having someone crack a joke. It's just this distraction technique so it doesn't dwell and dwell and, and mount into something that's greater. Um, so I think any of those techniques are good in the short term, um, but there are also tools that you can use that um, are kind of more daily practices that make you more resilient. And so um, the stress response releases a, really a plethora of um, hormones and chemicals. You know, everyone thinks of cortisol because they think of it as um, you know, the stress hormone. But there are other hormones released in the stress response that are stress recovery hormones, for example, oxytocin um, and um, or DHEA, as we've you know, previously mentioned, that helps you grow from stress. But these stress recovery hormones are ones that keep your stress response within a range um, that's optimal. And they also help um, keep that duration of that stress response more controlled. In a lot of um, the um, kind of habits that we can do for resilience, the way they work on a biologic level is that they're buffering um, the stress hormones in this optimal range. So let me give you an example because I think that'll help you understand what I'm trying to say. So um, some of the techniques that give you long-term resilience are social connections. So as humans, we're you know, social creatures. So when we reach out to another person um, and really connect, you know, so not just, you know, liking something on Twitter, um, but really having a, a deep connection through a conversation, you know, a close friend or confidant, that connection releases oxytocin. And oxytocin helps terminate our stress response. So it's trying to uh, kind of dial down the ramp up of these stress chemicals. Um, the more you have a strong social support system on a daily basis, you are buffering um, these stress hormones and you're making yourself more resilient in the face of stress. Um, that's one example. Other ways um, that you can uh, do that are by optimism, um, which is actually learned. It, some of it is innate, but a lot of tools help you become um, more optimistic or have a bigger expectation that a good outcome will occur. Gratitude is another. Um, similar to optimism, it tries to, you know, negate the cortisol response. Um, and so I think by adopting some of the resilience techniques, um, your body more quickly bounces back from stress. Um, and a person's biology of a stress response is actually different from person to person. Um, but it helps the biology of your stress response, your ratio of kind of these um, more damaging stress hormones to the more protective stress hormones um, can actually be um, controlled and changed by your habits. This is amazing. 
This is just so incredibly helpful and also puts into perspective. And these are also like the gratitude journal or, or making jokes or ensuring uh, you're, you have meaningful connections with friends. Those are things that we all can do on a daily basis. And those are all things that are relatively simple. And again, just knowing that all of these tools um, are available to us and they're, they're just so beneficial and healing uh, is, is just amazing to know. And they're evidence-based and backed by science. <laughs> um, so I'd like to shift our attention uh, to another pillar of health that I know we're both big proponents of, and that is plant-based nutrition. Um, so first, I'd like to know, um, again, if you remember a point to where um, you really realized the, the power that plant-based nutrition can have to prevent, arrest, or, or and reverse chronic disease, and that when you have actually started using it as a tool, um, maybe for yourself or your family or uh, in your work with your patients. You know, Tina, I think that... Um evidence behind plant-based diets has grown tremendously um, in, you know, really in the past decade. And I think um, understanding its power has, has grown as a result of that. And there have been, you know, some um, very well-reputed um, journals that are now publishing um, the, you know, difference of plant-based diets. Um, so I think that, you know, a big part of uh, kind of adopting it increasingly and, and actually kind of ratcheting up <laughs> how closely, you know, I, I follow, um, you know, because there's such a spectrum of plant-based diets, but I think how um, more I've veered in the complete plant-based as opposed to um, you know, versions of it that are on the spectrum that are maybe closer to a Mediterranean pattern um, has been as a result of the medical literature. Um, and so for people who are not familiar with that literature, I'll start off by saying that studies and research around nutrition um, are just notoriously challenging. And I think um, that's why sometimes headlines can be so conflicting, um, where one day something's good for you, another day something's bad for you. And, and there are different types of studies. Um, you know, some of the studies are just basic science. They, they look at mechanisms. And, you know, those mechanisms, you know, you indirectly extrapolate that they will translate into a, a good health outcome, but um, they don't always do so. Um, but they're very powerful because they at least make um, a pattern of eating plausible as a way that it can make a difference in health. So around plant-based diets, um, we know that um, they can be anti-inflammatory. They're high in antioxidants, which counter oxidative damage. Um, they help balance um, your gut bacteria um, in a way where there's diversity um, and there's a um, kind of good amount of, if you will, good gut bacteria. Um, and we know that plant-based foods can cause epigenetic changes. So epigenetic literally means on top of genes, and it's how um, plant-based foods have 
um, chemicals called phytochemicals that can turn on good genes and turn off bad genes. Um, so we know from basic science that there are clearly pathways that would explain how and why plant-based foods can make a difference in health. Um, the bulk of research around plant-based foods is really what we call epidemiologic studies. Um, and these are observation studies where we look at associations between um, a dietary pattern or even specific foods and a health outcome. So for example, you can see a study on um, red meat and uh, how it correlates with incidence of heart disease. And these studies are ones where you can see some divergent outcomes because they're picking up on an association, um, but they can't show causality meaning that if there's an association, say, between red meat and heart disease, they, these types of studies aren't designed to answer the question, does red meat cause heart disease? It could be the person that eats red meat is also eating french fries and a milkshake, and maybe it's the components in the other food. So it's not isolating red meat as the only causative factor, and that's why you can get um, results that can sometimes be contradictory. The highest quality studies are randomized controlled studies. Those are studies where you do control all the other factors and you place people on a very specific dietary regimen and then you follow the outcome. And those are the only studies that are designed to show causality, um, but they're so difficult to do because if you think about it, to tell people what to eat and then follow them for a year or two, could you imagine if someone said, okay, for breakfast, lunch, dinner, you must have X, Y, Z, must not deviate because you're in a controlled trial and you have to eat this food for a year. Now, how many people could do that? Um, you know, I certainly couldn't. I mean, I think it'd be really hard to be a subject in these studies. So um, getting a long-term, large-scale, randomized controlled study is exceedingly challenging. Um, a lot of times the groups that are you know, assigned to one type of eating pattern um, kind of cheat a little bit as we all do. And so by the end, all the different groups kind of you know, can start to look a little bit alike and it dilutes the results. So um, even though these are the highest quality, we have you know, not a whole lot of them for that reason. Um, so the best that we can do is see where there's synergy, you know, where the basic science um, kind of coincides with what we see in these observational studies, and then there's some randomized control studies that actually show some causality. And if all these types of studies align and they're indicating the same pattern, that's when you say, hey, this is as good as the science is going to be. It's not going to be perfect, um, but this is how we can um, have some confidence that plant-based diets are the healthiest diets uh, for preventing and managing chronic disease. Yeah, this is this is so helpful too in order to put uh, into perspective the the evidence and the research that's available today. Because again, as you mentioned, it's so much harder to 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 do research around nutrition and then to hold it by the same standard as 
the expectation is from the pill, for example, because the broccoli is not a pill. It doesn't look like a pill. It doesn't taste like a pill. And that's not how you cook it. But uh, we, we, the, there is some expectation from some of the specialists, even in the area, to have kind of certain, some of, a, of the same standards in terms of the way that we, we structure these studies. Um, I do want to ask, and I'm sure a lot of, the, a lot of the, our audience has the same question too. It, it, is, it is easy for you to say that you have made the decision uh, or you have seen the evidence um, as a, a practicing primary care physician. You have seen the evidence that plant-based nutrition has a very strong case for it. And now this is what you apply yourself and this is what you advocate for. But we know there are many, many other medical professionals who have access to the same evidence, however, may not be um, doing the same thing that you're doing and advocating for the same change. Why do you think there that is? You know, Gina, I think that every physician has, you know, first of all, a different level of interest um, within healthcare. You know, even amongst internal medicine primary care doctors. You know, some may have more of an interest in women's health, some may have more of an interest in cardiology. So within primary care, I think a small subset have an interest into wellness. So even though the information is there, it doesn't necessarily mean that people want to, first of all, even read it, and then second of all, um, you know, read enough of it where they're convinced and then want to make lifestyle changes as a result of it. Um, so there are just subsets within subsets within subsets. Um, so I think um, it comes down to a, a fairly small percentage of physicians that make it a part of their own life. Um, and, and I think it's just because health information and, and, and healthcare is so broad and so complex and we need every type of doctor. We need, uh, you know, people that are highly sub, sub, sub specialized because God forbid if I had a rare disease, I would want to go to that highly sub, sub, sub specialized physician. And so everyone kind of does their job and does it well. Um, but just because a person's a physician doesn't automatically mean that they're an expert on every type of you know, medicine. Um, so I think the people that are in the area of wellness, um, an overwhelming number of that subgroup um, follows plant-based diets. Um, but I, I think it's just by nature of, of healthcare being so broad that not more doctors do it. Yeah. That's, that's a very helpful perspective. And it also kind of goes back, I think, to the point that we made earlier, too, about the education. It's, it's, it's still transition. It's still perhaps now not exactly where it needs to be in order in, in terms of the amount of hours and plant-based nutrition or things like benefits of exercise and lifestyle medicine overall uh, that the, the attention gets in medical school. So I'm sure for the professionals who, ha who are practicing now in medicine or who have been practicing for years, perhaps that was not the case for them. So that, that's, that's a really good point. But I think this is a good leeway, a good door into discussing um, your work today. And I know there's so many just incredibly 
exciting and amazing projects that you're working on today beyond being the, the primary care, amazing primary care uh, doctor that you are and, and having so many grateful patients and having very little time left on your schedule for anything else, yet, to, yet you get to participate and lead many other exciting projects. Can you talk more about your work today, the things that you're most excited about and perhaps some of your ideas and vision for the future of your work and your part in healthcare as it further evolves. Yeah, you know, Tina, I will start with by saying, you know, you, you mentioned some of the basic pillars around lifestyle medicine and, um, you know, nutrition, exercise, um, sleep, stress management, they're all part of it. And, and I think the projects that I'm really excited about um, are ones like the Emory Healthy Kitchen Collaborative, which you were such an integral part in and helped make it a success. And it's because it brings together all the different dimensions of well-being. And I am a big believer um, that the sum is greater than the parts. And I think that a lot of worksite wellness programs focus on one dimension, um, for example, exercise, like an exercise challenge, or um, just the nutrition or dietary portion. Um, but I think something magical happens when you bring all these parts together, because if one part isn't something that a person feels that they have the, the skills to incorporate into their life, it can make it hard for them to adopt the knowledge from the other areas. So for example, um, a person may know versus an unhealthy fat, but if they're not good at managing their stress, they're going to reach for comfort food. That's just how we're wired. Um, so I'm very passionate about the types of programs that uh, kind of look at health and well-being from a more holistic standpoint that bring together all these different entities, um, because I think that those are the types of programs that can make the biggest impact. Um, and can kind of help a person really in small um, bite-sized steps work towards um, you know what I think of as whole health where your entire body is aligned um, in a way that um, can help you stay healthy and, and age healthily. That's, that is such a good point. And yes, as you mentioned with the Emory Healthy Kitchen Initiative, I think we've really seen it where it's, it's, it's the same approach as it is with medicine. Instead of treating the different parts or different diseases, you treat the whole person. And it's the same way, instead of addressing just one component of, of lifestyle, you address all of them in combination, showing how integral and how they are uh, in, in their entirety and how they all contribute to each other and help each other between, as you mentioned, the nutrition and exercise and stress and how once you start making shifts in one, you feel the differences and kind of trickle down the effects and all the other components as well. That, that is such a good point. What, um, what gives you hope today in terms of uh, our healthcare moving or maybe not moving in the right direction? Yeah, and you know, this also ties back to your previous question in terms of you know, what gets me excited. Um, so I look at where we are as um, a healthcare system and as a nation and 
currently, you know, we are seeing epidemic rates of obesity, which is continuing to worsen. We are seeing, you know, epidemic rates of diabetes and prediabetes. Um, similarly, you know, heart disease is still the number one killer in this country. And these trends are not sustainable. And I'm not just talking about a financially unsustainable as a crisis in, in health insurance, um, but I'm also talking about at a personal level where, you know, our children are actually the first generation that are forecasted to have a shorter life expectancy than, than we do. Um, so there's this huge human toll um, as well, you know, in our quality of life and in our ability to remain independent as we get older. And I think change has to happen. And my vision is that more of that part of care, of keeping people healthy, um, becomes mainstream. I think a lot of that right now in our healthcare system is considered more fringe and not on par with some of the, um, you know, kind of interventional type of care, the, the procedures, the medications. Um, and I think it, it's almost inevitable, and then I hope it happens within my career, um, that there's a greater emphasis on the wellness portion until that is the norm of what people expect out of healthcare. Um, and that we start to see a change in the trends in chronic disease and in people's ability to enjoy their life, you know, their quality of life, live, live disease-free um, and live independently and, and do so with joy and happiness. Dr. Berkowitz, I really hate that we're coming close to the, to the end of our time. I feel like I can talk to you forever, even though we do talk quite a bit. I, I would love to have you again on this show and ask you a thousand more questions about everything. Um, but to be respectful of your time, I uh, would probably should start wrapping it up. I do have a final question that I'd like to ask you before we go, but before we go there, um, what are some of the final thoughts that you would like to leave the, the listeners with? I think that uh, you know, a lot of um, people are increasingly interested in wellness and well-being. And I would encourage people, you know, first of all, to hopefully find a physician um, that values that, because I think if you have a partner in your journey, it certainly makes the process easier. Um, again, there is a science around it, and, and you know most people just don't have the time to read all of the science. So if you could find a physician um, that embraces this, um, I think that your likelihood of sticking with the changes you wanna make are greater. So I encourage you to, to do that. Um, there are physicians out there who, who are very passionate about this um, and, um, and you have to be a good fit with your physician um, to embark on this change. Um, and I would also emphasize that it's, you don't need to you know, do anything you know, quote, big um, in terms of change in your life. Just focus on little things and if you can make tiny little changes, 
that's how big changes actually happen. They compound, you know, if it's um, a tiny little thing today, you build on that and you build on that. It's very similar to say, if you put a dollar in the bank, um, how interest compounds on that dollar, where if you do that when you're really young, by the time you wanna retire, that actually can be um, a substantial amount of money. And investing in well-being works the same way. Just make tiny little investments today. And I think when you are a decade or two or three down the road, you'll see that it compounds into um, what's really a tangible difference in your experience. Thank you so much, Dr. Berkowitz. I love it. We get health advice on, on top of the financial advice. <laughs> So it's all part of well-being. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Dr. Burke, so the, the name of the podcast is Follow Your Kind. And uh, we talk a lot about kindness overall here and uh, how different people define that value for themselves so they can uh, follow that intentionally. And you're such an amazing example to me of a person who is very kind. But I'm curious, how, how do you define kindness for yourself? You know, Tina, I, I'm so glad you asked that question because I think um, kindness is so important today um, when I think there is so much discord and, and disharmony and, and, and disrespect. Um, so I, you know, appreciate the emphasis that you put on it because I think we need to have more conversations around it. Um, I think for me, I would say kindness is treating people with compassion, with empathy, and with respect. And, and remembering that we are all part of the same human family. And, and I think when you approach you know, kindness and, and how you treat others with the understanding that fundamentally we're all more similar than we are different, um, I think that frames how you interact with people in a different way. Mm. It's so beautiful. Dr. Berkowitz, thank you so, so much from the bottom of my heart for the time today. Um, I really appreciate you as a person. I appreciate your friendship. I appreciate your leadership. I appreciate everything that you do. And I cannot even begin to tell you how excited I am to work with you and then to now let others get to know you a little bit better. Oh, Tina, well, I'm going to turn that around and say it's an absolute honor and privilege to work with you, your energy and your enthusiasm. Um, first of all, it's infectious. Um, and, um, and then you um, are a big, really, reason behind um, a lot of the success behind our program. So I can't thank you enough for all the energy and passion you put into making everything you touch be successful. It is very much fun and a privilege to work with you. So we'll keep it going. Thank you so much, Dr. Breakfast. Thank you. Bye-bye.